Hello and welcome to the BSI Education Podcast with me, Matthew Childs. And me, Alan Sellers. Hello, Alan. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And how are you, Matthew? I'm very well, thank you. Now, with these podcasts, our aim is to bring you the stories behind standards and standardisation. In this episode, we focus on the stories behind one standard in particular, the International Health and Safety Management Standard, ISO 45001. And it's the first of our standards in the spotlight. ISO 45001 is designed to prevent work-related injury and ill health and to provide safe and healthy workplaces. As an international standard, ISO 45001 crosses geographic, political, economic, commercial and social boundaries with the aim of setting a single benchmark for the management of occupational health and safety. Our guests for this episode share their experiences of being at the heart of the development of this standard. Our first guest is Martin Cottam. Martin is Group Technical Assurance and Quality Director at Lloyd's Register. He's their voice on occupational health and safety. Martin has been active in standards development since the 1990s. He chaired the BSI Committee HS1 and led the UK delegation for the ISO 45001 Project Committee. He currently chairs the ISO Technical Committee TC283 for Health and Safety Management Systems. Martin is joined by Sally Swindwood. Sally is Lead Standards Development Manager within the Governance and Resilience Sector at BSI. Sally is responsible for the UK standards development and UK contribution to several international management standards, including ISO 45001. Together, Martin and Sally shined a spotlight on ISO 45001, why it was developed and why it matters. So in this episode of the podcast, we are delighted to be joined by Martin Cottam and Sally Swindwood. Hello, Martin. How are you? Very well. Thank you, Matthew. And how, Sa- Sally, how are you? I'm very well, too. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. It's our pleasure. Uh, now, Martin, if I could t- turn to you first, can you tell us a bit about Lloyd's Register and your role there? Yes, sure. So, so Lloyd's Register is a global organisation which provides uh, professional services for engineering and technology, the main focus being to improve safety and to increase the performance of critical infrastructure. In fact, the organisation is, n- is owned by the Lloyd's Register Foundation, a charitable foundation. Now, my role as Group Technical Assurance and Quality Director for the group is that I lead the team that's responsible both for technical governance uh, and for quality management. So that includes coordinating our management system, uh, maintaining our own certification to a variety of management system standards, Uh, and also accreditations for our organization to operate as an inspection body, as a management system certifier, a product certification body, and a notified body. And I'm also the teams responsible for managing our internal audit program and reporting to the executive and the board on quality performance. And that means I'm very much a user of management systems in my day job, and then I combine that with a role in standards, which means that I'm involved as a writer of management system standards and also have experience of auditing people against management system standards. And that's quite a useful combination of, of experience around the use of management systems in different ways. Standards, sorry. Now we're going to come back to your, your standards journey in a second, if that's okay, Martin. But Sally, how about you? What's, what's your role at BSI? I'm a lead standards development manager, which means I have a specific portfolio that I'm responsible for um, in the business improvement and occupational health and safety team. So my key areas of work are occupational health and safety management 
and quality management. I work with national stakeholders and international stakeholders. I manage the UK committees for those areas of work and I also manage the international committee for the health and safety management. Excellent. Now, as I said, in these podcasts, we're always keen to learn about the standards journeys of our guests. Sort of how did you get here? So, Martin, how about you? You are you are steeped in standards, I think it'd be fair to say. So how did you get to this particular point? What's your standards journey? Well, my background uh, career wise, uh, Matthew, is in risk assessment and risk management in the major hazard industries. So the development of safety cases in, in areas like nuclear and uh, oil and gas and so on. Uh, at some point in, LR, in my time at LR, I was asked to get involved in the development of occupational health and safety management system certification. It was a time at which uh, clients who already had that kind of certification for their quality and environmental management systems were beginning to ask questions about, well, was there an equivalent offering for their uh, management of occupational health and safety? And so that became the focus of my role. And it was suggested to me that it might be useful to join the BSI Committee for Occupational Health and Safety Management, as it had recently produced a guidance standard, which was in fact being used as the basis for assessment by some organizations. And the committee was also discussing the possible case to, for proposing the development of an international standard in that field. That was 1997. Uh, I've been a member of the committee ever since then. I chaired it uh, in the period 2013 to 2018, which was exactly the period in which ISO 45001 was being developed by the ISO project committee. And then after publication, a permanent technical committee was formed at ISO, Technical Committee 283, and I have chaired that committee since its formation, i.e. for the last two years. That's excellent. I was chuckling there because um, I think you were chuckling yourself. Uh, I think once you get involved in standards, standards you, you can check out, but you can never leave. I think um, once when, you start, once you start in this world, uh, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to leave. But Sally, how about you? What's your? Um, how did you get to this point? What's your standards journey? Well, to be honest, Matthew, I'm still slightly surprised I'm here. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a plan. It was somehow one of those winding paths that led me to a place that I'm very glad I got to um, without a destination in mind. My background is in publishing. I was a journalist and editor for many years. And then I took on a role in a small business where I was suddenly made responsible for um, occupational health and safety with no training and no knowledge. And I had to learn very quickly and implement a system. I didn't know standards existed. I didn't know there was anything out there to help me. So um, having implemented quality management processes and systems in magazines to uh, make sure that those were done properly, I then found myself implementing management systems for health and safety in a physiotherapy centre. Um, and then I went into the civil service and ended up working on quality management in there as well for the Crown Prosecution Service in a particular department. So it, it was a strange mix of skills that landed me at BSI, um, but one which suits my experience as it happens rather well because it combines my ability to draft, to write and to edit with my people experience. So the focus of this podcast then is about the standard ISO 45001 
Again, Martin, maybe I could turn to you. I'm interested in the sort of background and, and rationale to the standard. Why was it developed in the first place and what were the drivers for it? I think that's a fascinating question with this uh, particular standard, uh, Matthew, and I've often asked myself the question, why do we end up doing it at this particular time? Uh, those who are familiar with management system standards will, will know that uh, you know, the, 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 the major standards are ISO 45,000, sorry, ISO 9001 for quality and 14,001 for environment. And they have been around for a very long time. And you can't help but wonder, so why did it take so long? Why have we only just got round to having a standard for occupational health and safety management? And in some ways, I think that also points to the difficulty we then had in developing that standard. Because by the time we came to write it, we'd arguably had, certainly in the Western economies, the best part of 150 years of safety culture and regimes that had been built up around safety legislation, which differs quite significantly by country. So why did we then move to having a management system standard when we did? And I think that's two things. One, I think there was a general recognition in the world of safety that there was more to it than legislative compliance. In fact, in many ways, we in the UK, I think, had led that journey with our move uh, starting even from the 60s, 1960s, towards a more risk-based approach and the recognition that with changing technology, you can't always rely on keeping up prescriptive legislation being kept up to date. The onus has to be on the organisation to understand its risks and to manage it. So legislation was already moving us, if you like, in the direction of an organisation understanding its own risks and having systems in place to respond to that. But I think the other driver was the thing I referred to at the start, the existence of other management system standards for other disciplines like quality and environment. Many organizations run combined QHSE functions, for example. And so some parts of those functions were very familiar with using management systems. And so I think there was a sort of leveling up there where people began to think, well, it would make sense to have a standard for the, the overall management of OHS as well. Uh, 45,001 replaces uh, OSAS 18,001. What, why now? Why has it become a, an ISO standard? What's, uh, what's the reason for the change? I think the main reason for the change was that that in many people's minds that an ISO standard always represented the desired endpoint, but it proved quite difficult in those first occasions back over 20 years ago when, when ISO was first debating whether it, it should develop a standard in that space to get the necessary consensus uh, to proceed. And I think faced with market demand, uh, that triggered uh, a group of stakeholders to decide to work together to produce a standard of that type. And that's really the, the nature of, of, of OSAS 18001. It was produced by a group of stakeholders who called themselves the OSAS Project Group. Um, and they established that document using the standard ISO management systems very much as a model. So it did have a family resemblance but it didn't have the same credentials that an ISO standard would have. And I think the key differentiator there was the stakeholder mix. And that, of course, in turn has some impact on market acceptance, potential credibility. It was a very widely used standard, but I think those who, who 
were involved with it always recognized that the stakeholder mix was was less complete than it would be under a standard ISO development. And in particular, labor organizations were not particularly strongly represented in the development of OSAS 18001. And I think that's very evident then, the impact of, of bringing more of those stakeholders into the mix becomes evident when you compare and contrast the two standards, because 45001 is much stronger in its, its recognition of the importance of, of worker participation. Just on that, uh, Sally, Martin's mentioned there about the, the stakeholders involved. Um, could you just take us inside the process? Who was involved, the, the sorts of stakeholders involved in, in developing this particular standard? Because it was such a wide-reaching standard, I mean, this is a horizontal standard, it can apply to any organisation anywhere in the world, regardless of how big or small or complex you are. It meant that a lot of people wanted to get involved once it was approved for development. So we took a tripartite approach. Every participating member was allowed to nominate three experts into the working group and we had around 70 countries involved overall including the observer members and each of those countries was enabled to send an industry representative an employer representative and a labor representative so that not just the organizations were, views were taken into account. Also, the worker views were taken into account. This is part of why it's taken so long to develop, is that health and safety is tricky. In many countries, unions see it as the right of legislation and unions to manage worker health and safety. In some countries, there is no legislation, so there are no protections other than what the labour organisations managed to negotiate. So this was a real bringing together of all the different points of view. And overall, there were probably thousands of people involved. So we may have 100 people sitting in a working group meeting in the ISO room, but those 100 people would represent thousands of other stakeholders back in their own national committees. And each national committee had members representing other stakeholder groups for example. Now, there must have been quite a few challenges then in getting agreement and, and creating consensus for the standard which I, which I want to come back to but before, before I ask you about that I'm interested in your, your particular roles. Martin you, you led the UK delegation for this standard what does that, what does that mean? Well, I guess formally, Matthew, what it means is that in the plenary sessions where the whole committee meets to take its formal decisions, uh, it's the head of delegation who, who takes the lead in speaking on behalf of the country and articulating the, the national position. And obviously that requires some, some judgment as to what the, and, and taking a steer from the discussions you've had prior to the meeting as to what the, the key items are and what the national position is and what you're trying to achieve in the meeting and then trying to articulate that in a way that will influence uh, other countries and, and, and garner support. So that's kind of part of it. And then a lot of the meeting, typically the group will be broken up into smaller working groups with uh, teams of people working on particular clauses and areas of the standard. And I think there the role of the head of delegation is just to make sure that there's time found for the team, the UK team, to come together and keep track of what the progress is in the various parallel activities 
and identify anything that is you know anything surprising that's happened uh, positive or 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 less positive and, and work out what our tactics are to try and influence the argument on things that really matter to us Sally, from a, from a national standards body perspective, uh, BSI's particular role in the development of, of ISO 45001? Well, BSI had the secretariat, the leadership for the project committee that developed this. Um, so BSI was in overall charge of project managing it and making sure it happened. My specific role was to ensure that the national committee's views were heard, that we sought out stakeholder views, came together as a committee, agreed which views to put into ISO. And then in the meetings themselves, I would support the UK committee. I would make sure that the various people from the UK who were at the meetings, often working in smaller groups, as Martin said, that we coordinated, that we caught up with each other and knew what was going on and identified the big issues. And working in those smaller groups, um, I often worked with Martin. I acted as secretary for our particular task group on risk and planning, which was um, quite contentious. It, it, there was a lot of discussions and a lot of iterations in our particular task group. We even had some additional meetings outside of the uh, standard ones. Um, and so I would be the one who was actually had my fingers on the keyboard and tried to make sense of the discussions and turn it into simple language that everybody in the room, regardless of their native language, could understand, trying to make it as clear as possible in a difficult subject area. You both mentioned that this is a obviously an important standard involving a huge array of experts and stakeholders. I'm interested in the sort of challenges that you face with this particular standard around, around getting agreement and consensus. How, how do you make sure that uh, the different attitudes and approaches and perspectives are incorporated into uh, an international management standard? How does, how does that happen? I think a lot of that is the a challenge for whoever is facilitating the group at the time, uh, Matthew, whether it's a subgroup or the committee as, as a whole. Uh, in fact, it's probably just worth touching on the fact that, of course, the, the role of chair of the committee, as the role I now have for the ISO committee, contains, in a sense, both short and long-term elements. The long-term is to be thinking about the sustainability of, of a committee, um, the diversity, uh, the, the, whether it covers all relevant stakeholders, um, that kind of succession planning, that kind of thing for leadership uh, of roles to make sure that, that the committee isn't just recycling the same individuals to lead things repeatedly when others are looking for the opportunity to gain that experience. But the other side of it is the short term, which is managing uh, the discussion in the moment, which is trying to make sure that everybody gets a fair chance to speak. That means encouraging some people to speak and perhaps encouraging others to speak less. Um, and to try and pull together from what one's hearing uh, and help clarify for people what perhaps you're hearing in terms of points of common understanding, similarity of view, what are the points of difference and try to probe a little bit to understand what the different positions are, because it's, it's important, I think, to remember in the ISO world, an awful lot of people are having to work in a language which is not their native language. We have a huge advantage as Brits in the fact that the work is carried out in English. But it does mean, of course, that people need time to 
articulate, formulate and articulate their ideas. And also they may need some help to actually communicate that or people may need a bit of help to understand what the underlying point might be. So all of that really is why sometimes these discussions can be quite long and quite challenging because one's trying to peel away and understand what lies behind the language in terms of sometimes different national perspectives and cultures which affect the way people view individual uh, issues. I remember us getting quite bogged down at one point discussing um, consultation and involvement in decision making and realizing that actually there were two words on the table which were completely dif differently understood by different uh, groups of people within the room. Uh, and, and once we had that understanding, but it took a while to get there, at least we began to move forward a little bit. So that's, that's kind of some of those challenges. I, I think that's right, Martin. And I think it's worth um, talking about the fact that a lot of our consensus building doesn't take place in the main meeting. It happens in the coffee breaks. It happens over lunch. It happens over a beer at the end of the day. And, and that's when you often suddenly have a light bulb moment of you thought you understood something the same way and then you realise you absolutely don't and, and you are coming from a completely different perspective but you have assumed that you thought the same thing. As Martin said, participation and consultation was a really good example that in some parts of the world they meant completely the opposite of what we thought. You wouldn't know that until you'd had those extensive conversations. So consensus building is a very um, nuanced thing. It's, it's not straightforward in any way. You feel like you've got somewhere and then suddenly something crops up that makes you realise you're not there at all and you need to go round again. Just on, just on consensus, it doesn't mean there's universal agreement, does it? It can be people may still disagree with the final decision or on a particular clause in the standard or even some, some sections of the standard. It doesn't have to be a universal agreement. That's correct. Yeah. Um, you may still have some people who have sustained objections to the agreement you've made. But if the vast majority of people in the room can live with what is being proposed, and that's a phrase we use a lot of the time, can you live with it? It, we have to understand that people aren't always going to get their perfect solution to everything. But if it's workable, if you can make it work, then it's acceptable to most people and we can move on. I just wonder if there's a particular part of the area of the standard where, where that, that, that occurred, where there was uh, most disagreement over. Are you able to, to share an example of that? Yes, there were some areas which were much, much harder to get consensus on than others. For example, the section on outsourcing and how we manage the supply chain in terms of health and safety, partly because in some countries there is legislation about it and we have to be very careful not to be in conflict, but that's very difficult when you're dealing with hundreds of countries potentially. Um, and also because our understanding of what outsourcing was, was very different in different parts of the world. So that took a lot of time to resolve. In fact, I think would say probably, Martin, it was the last issue we finally resolved um, to get agreement to put the standard out for final ballot. 
Yeah, I think uh, we all agreed at the time, didn't we, Sally, that, that outsourcing was, was an important issue for the standard to address. And yes, a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears went into trying to uh, sort out exactly what should be said there. And with the, it's so important with the growth of global supply chains and, and those concerns that, you know, we may be vulnerable if we're not careful to exporting OH&S risks down the supply chain to organizations in other countries who are just not as capable of dealing with them and therefore we're exporting harm to other countries. But I think we'd all concede, those of us involved, that it remains perhaps a weak area of the standard that we'll want to have a close look at and, and aim to improve at the next revision. I think that's uh, worth remembering generally, Matthew, that consensus building means that there's always room for improvement. So standards are never perfect, they're never finished. So the revision process is really, really important. We keep improving it as we get user feedback. I just want to ask you about the, the key features of ISO 45001. Can you take us inside the standard? So I think I suggested earlier or highlighted that there's a common framework across all the ISO management system standard family. And I guess that is probably best described by saying it, it, it itself describes how to implement the plan, do, check, act cycle for an organization to understand its situation, what it's trying to achieve, put arrangements in place, measure how that performs, and then take appropriate action to, to improve. So all management system standards in many ways work to that uh, common model. There are, however, some particular features, I think, about um, ISO 45001. All management system standards, to some extent, emphasize the importance of leadership. But I think that 45001 probably goes further than most in emphasizing that point, which I think is, is, is well reflected also, of course, in many countries in safety legislation as well. Where the standard is very distinctive when compared to other ISO management system standards is the amount of emphasis on worker participation. So that's consultation, involvement in decision making. So that's a particularly uh, distinctive feature of the standard. And then the other thing I think I'd highlight is that all of these management system standards now talk about the organization understanding its context, by which it really means the external environment in which it's operating, the internal environment of the organization and its own characteristics, and the uh, needs and expectations of stakeholders. Uh, and what that's saying really is that the management system is there as a tool to enable the organization to respond to the environment in which it's trying to work. And so, you know, that sense that perhaps we had, you know, in, in that historically, that sort of management system standards were prescribing a sort of cookie cutter approach, which was, well, there's 16 things to do here and you just have to do those. I think standards have increasingly tried to find ways of emphasizing to us, no, there may be some common principles of things you need to be doing, but the whole thing needs to be tuned to the nature of the organization that you are, what you're trying to achieve, the environment in which you're trying to achieve it. I think the other thing is the whole risk-based approach. It's building on what Martin has said. It's cyclical. 
it's not a one-time thing. You don't go down your checklist and tick them off and say, yes, I've done that. So we're fine now. Everybody's safe. Everybody's healthy. Nothing bad will happen. It's very much about understanding that risks change all the time and you have to keep your eye on them and you have to keep checking that things are working and taking actions to improve what you're doing or fix problems. You have to understand why things happen. So I think that's a key part of 45001. It teaches organisations to be proactive in looking at what's going on, in seeing what's coming and managing it before it happens, before the worst case scenario happens, managing it out as far as you can or reducing the impact. If you can't eliminate that risk, making sure that the impacts of something happening are lowered as low as you can make it. So from an organisation perspective then, if I was using the previous standard, uh, OSAS 18001, I'm now adopting 45001, what, what differences would, would I be, what, what changes would I be making within the organisation? And I suppose from a, an employee's perspective, how would, I, how would I experience the differences between the two approaches? It's an interesting question, Matthew, because I think the, the answer would be very much dependent on the organisation. And actually, you might not experience any change because remember, organizations develop their own management system. And the standard is, if you like, a reference document which influences what they choose to put within it. But most organizations won't limit what they put into their management system to be, well, you know, if I can't find any basis for it in the standard, I wouldn't consider doing it. So, you know, this theme I've talked about earlier of this sort of strength of, of, of emphasis now on worker participation in 45001, there'll be lots of organisations who had that participation alive and kicking, even though it wasn't as strongly called for in uh, OSAS 18001. So they may have needed to make very little adjustment and looked at the new standard and said, yes, but we're already you know, we're already compliant with this, we already do it. But there will be organisations where those clause by clause comparisons do throw up things which perhaps they hadn't thought about. And they may need to think of making some adjustments to, to their management system just to, to make sure that they can demonstrate that they do meet all the, all the specified requirements. And of course, some requirements also go away when you move from one standard to another. I think it's important to, to just make the point that um, all this standards writing effort is as much about deletion as addition. We're not trying to perpetually raise the bar and just think of new things that people should be doing. It's trying to focus on, on the key things. And so, I mean, documentation is a great example of that. Historically, management system standards tended to be fairly prescriptive as to what documentation organizations should um, establish and maintain and retain and I think we've you know that arguably got the standards a bit of a bad name in some circles because people perceived that it was creating a, a degree of bureaucracy that wasn't perhaps helpful that's really been reversed out of management system standards big time now with a real focus on the, the, the organization having documentation to the extent necessary for the management system to achieve its objectives. In other words, you've got a pretty free hand to make that determination for yourself. I think the other thing that some users have spoken to me about in the change from OSAS 18001 to 45001 is the 
more emphasis on the duty of care in the supply chain, that it doesn't end at your building's doors. So a little bit, as Martin says, some organisations will always have done this. This won't be new for everybody. But for organisations that were trying to do the bare minimum, they no longer can do that. They do need to think about outsourcing contractors, looking after other people to the extent that they're able to do that. Yeah, and you've prompted another thought on on my part, Sally, of course, which is that this standard, I think, 45,001 is much clearer in the way it reminds people that the workplace actually moves in many cases with the worker. It isn't necessarily a fixed location to which people go. Well, goodness knows we're all experiencing that in the current pandemic, or many people are. The workplace might now stay where we are in our in our own homes. But there's also lots of other workplaces, whether that's in public spaces uh, for people who work for utility organisations, for example, um, or, or whether it's people whose work takes them into other people's homes to do work. So that recognition that the workplace and worker risk exists when we're traveling on business, it may have some influence on you know, our travel schedule, where we stay, uh, how we travel, all those things, the, the hours involved in that, and, and indeed the health and safety risks. So I think that comes across much more clearly in, in the current standard. And this comes back, um, Matthew, to one of your earlier questions about the tricky bits where we had difficulty getting consensus. Workplace was one of those things. We had extensive conversations just relating to our own situation of there we were, a hundred odd people sitting in a room. I think it was in Casablanca and we were going, but surely this is our workplace right now because we are working on behalf of our organisations and how much control do our organisations have over this workspace and how do you manage our health and safety when our work takes us to airports and on aeroplanes and into little restaurants in Morocco and all of those other things. So that was a big area of discussion because of course our organisations, our employers still have a duty of care to us when we're thousands of miles from where their headquarters are. I think, uh, Sally, you've probably made the greatest pitch for standards-making participation uh, that I've probably ever heard. So uh, get involved in standards and and go to Casablanca. So uh, (laughs) that must have been a hardship. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Sally, you mentioned mentioned earlier on about standards uh, not standing still. It's constantly evolving uh, process and uh, standards are reviewed all the time. Where, where are we currently with ISO 45001 in, in its life cycle? Well, it was published in March 2018, so not that long ago. Um, but as we've discussed before, that standard took five years active work to develop. We began in 2013 to publish in 2018. So we are already at the point we, where we are looking at preliminary work for a revision of this standard. We're now at a point where we're beginning to get good solid user feedback, where we know which bits need improving or are, they need clarifying, the language is difficult, anything like that. And of course our world is changing. Technology changes everything. A global pandemic makes us look differently at health and safety risks. So we're beginning now to talk about when we start the revision, 
what will go into that revision, what extent the revision should be. Should it be a major revision or should it be a minor revision? All of these things are currently being discussed. We will probably ballot to approve or not work on the revision next year. And then we will aim to have a three-year development cycle on that. When you say ballot there, that is a ballot of ISO members? It's a ballot of the participating members in the ISO Technical Committee, which at the moment is around 80 countries. So Martin, uh, Sally's mentioned there the, the revision process for 45,001 itself. Sort of what's next for occupation, occupational health and safety standards more generally? Well, having published 45,001, uh, Matthew, and, and sort of established that as the core baseline standard, which of course is also used for certification, among other things, it feels now to us very much as if the market demand is, is more for guidance that supports organisations to implement uh, that, looking at particular areas which represent a challenge. So we've recently published uh, a handbook which is aimed very much at supporting smaller organisations, SMEs you might say, to uh, implement the principles un underlying the standard. We're working on a guidance standard in relation to uh, psychological health and well-being in the workplace. We're currently balloting uh, a piece, or have just balloted a piece of work on performance measurement in relation to occupational health and safety. So there are specific areas, uh, and in fact one more for the list is that we're considering uh, and looking at the benefit, potential benefit of developing something around uh, the uh, around pandemic response, given obviously current circumstances and the amount of work that's that's already been done. In fact, uh, great work by BSI, uh, and we've seen keen interest in that from a number of other countries so that may point the way as well so guidance on specific areas i think to help people in those niche areas can i call it that of, of ohs which people find challenging sally did you want to say anything here around the covid19 response at all we have a real issue in that it is a global problem it is a global pandemic and some countries are relatively well equipped to take measures to help organisations work safely, to look after people. And other countries simply don't have anything in place. They are really struggling to work out how to look after people without completely destroying their economy. And we've heard lots of conversations in the news, on opinion pieces, in newspapers, about you're putting the economy ahead of people's health, or it's all very well but we're going out of business and we're all going to die because we can't eat. Um, so, you know, if we can help as, as the ISO committee responsible for occupational health and safety, if we can help give some good advice on how to manage this, particularly for those smaller organisations that don't have the resources to, I don't know, install infrared temperature checks or perspex screens everywhere or anything like that, then I think we have a duty of care to our stakeholders to give them that help at a time of need. You've told us today that um, ISO 45001, a very important uh, international management standard, and about the background and history to its development and why it's important 
uh, for organizations. I just wonder, uh, Martin, maybe start with you, what you've learned from, the, from the, the experience of working on this particular standard? I think probably the same thing I learn every time I attend a standards meeting, uh, Matthew, which, which is how much more there is to learn and to appreciate about the standard or its interpretation and some and also of course some of the challenges that people face in using it you'd think after 20 years it might in standards work it might be becoming a bit uh, repetitive shall we say and and I, that is absolutely i just find it completely fascinating that you i can still turn up to meetings and listen to the debate and be involved in the debate and think i'd never thought of it like that before and yes, you might be right. You know, things that you take for granted or, or just haven't thought about. And, and it's amazing how much richness I think there is in a standards document in terms of the amount of effort that people have put into crafting the words and sometimes, you know, done a really good job, sometimes perhaps slightly less well. But the discussion and the debate about what's it really mean? What's the underlying principle? What are the challenges of making that work? absolutely continues to fascinate me i must say i really enjoy it and of course the 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 opportunity to learn yes we, we mentioned the fact the committee meets around the world um that's very pleasant and very uh, enjoyable to do but it's also a huge opportunity to learn our, our last physical meeting um for uh, committee 283 was in uh, kigali in rwanda where we were wonderfully hosted but actually we took the opportunity to have discussions which really focused on some of the challenges of OHS management for organizations uh, across the, the, the several many countries from Africa who were quite strongly represented at the meeting and that was absolutely fascinating for everybody. We learned in particular quite a lot about the challenges of the informal sectors of the economy which are quite significant in those countries but you know with a gig economy they're not that insignificant for, for many countries these days of how do you manage OHS when you don't have those sort of formal employment relationships which is, is kind of where OHS management has always historically be, begun so yeah huge opportunity to learn and, and really fascinating. I think the other thing that it's worth mentioning is for me anyway standards development has taught me levels of patience I didn't know I had <laughs> it's it's you know things that for me aren't important are desperately important for somebody else and and we can spend many many hours discussing something which for the UK is irrelevant or a given or you know it's not a priority for us but that cultural understanding that for some people in other parts of the world that is absolutely critical it has taught me a level of patience that I'm quite proud of now because I don't consider myself to be a patient person but I'm getting better. In terms of the, the sort of wider suite of occupational health and safety management standards are there any current standards out for public consultation can people get involved and provide comments on them? Absolutely, Matthew. It's a good good timing, that question, because we currently have a standard uh, out for public uh, comment. And, and I just emphasise that there is public comment 
process involved in almost everything that we do and it's absolutely what feeds the whole process so i'd really encourage people to follow our activities and comment on anything that we're we're doing as a committee but in particular right now there's an opportunity to comment on the uh, draft of iso 45003 which is uh, a guidance standard on psychological health and safety uh, and managing psychosocial risk uh, in the workplace. Before we finish, I just want to say that for more information on some of the themes raised in this episode, go to www.bsigroup.com forward slash ISO 45001. And to find out more on BSI education, go to www.bsigroup.com forward slash education. You can also find these and other links in the episode notes. Do please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts and share us on social media using the hashtag BSIEdPod. And if you have any questions, comments, suggestions or ideas for future podcasts, then please get in touch at education at bsigroup.com. We really welcome your feedback. All that remains is for me to say thank you, Martin. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you, Sally. Thanks, Matthew. And of course, to thank you for listening.